You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. Technology and Society with Aki Anastasio. Aki, good morning. Do you feel free on this Freedom Day or like a caged bird? <laughs> good morning to you, Eusebius. I, I feel like a caged bird, to be very honest with you. Um, but, uh, you know, broadly speaking, I think that we cannot argue that as a society we are freer. But I think that um, coronavirus or COVID-19 is challenging those notions for many of us. It does, doesn't it? But you have a long memory, and that's not me euphemistically calling you old. You understand the importance of not being glib about this day uh, every year. You, while critiquing the gap between the vision for true freedom and the mistakes we often still make as a society, not just the government, but as citizens, as corporate citizens, 1994 was very significant and transformative. And it's so important that, that we aren't glib about its meaning, notwithstanding how much more work we have to do to be vigilant about freedom. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, 94, I, you know, I remember being up in a chopper and overlooking what was going on on that particular day. And even the lead up to that day, you know, starting five years prior and even the yes. months and the days before this particular day. I mean, on this day itself, let's not forget that there was, um, you know, there was still terrorism attacks. There was an explosion at Owatambo International, then known as Jansmats, uh International. I mean, so... It's, let us not forget the importance of this day and how far we've come as a society and as a country. Absolutely, we yeah. still have we still have so much more to go uh, when you look at the inequality in our country. Absolutely, totally, totally agree. Okay, in technology, there are some of the issues we'll look at that intersect with this conversation in the background that I'm having with listeners today about freedom. Uh, but the first item we're going to start off with is which one, Aki? Well, let's start off with Apple and Google. And I mean, it's the backdrop is coronavirus. And that's what really we have been focusing over the last few weeks. Uh, that's been kind of the theme and what's been happening around the world technology wise. And what does it mean to you and I? And, 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 and just obviously uh, keeping tabs on the virus and, and the future of uh, the safety of the global citizens of the world. Hmm. And it's quite interesting to see. Um, how different countries are dealing with the virus, how different countries are, you know, using technology to track the virus and track us and really help the um, medical resources and the emergency services to understand, uh, you know, what can, what can they expect to happen over the next couple of weeks. I mean, you know, the data we are gathering, for example, for our government to say that we are going to peak in August or September is they obviously have worked out some mathematical equations that put this in some kind of algorithm to try and predict the spread of this particular virus. So Apple and Google and every one of us has either one of these phone devices in our hands. Um, they are jointly building software into iPhone and Android devices to help track the spread of coronavirus. They're telling users that uh, and they, and how it will work is it uses Bluetooth and they will tell users if they've contacted an infected person and if they are potentially sick themselves. And what it does is it uses this via the built-in technology on the phone, which tracks us and knows where we've been. And it knows that, hey, a couple of days ago, I was in contact with Eusebius. Eusebius in that time period has contracted coronavirus and he's now inputted the information on his phone. So he's now on the database that 
hey, Eusebius has coronavirus. The phone then looks back and says, hey, in the last days or the days before Eusebius was tested positive for corona, he passed Aki. He was in very close proximity with Aki. We don't even know he may have touched him or he may have, you know, they spent X amount of time together. It's time to warn Aki that Eusebius has been tested positive <laughs> and Aki's network is in danger of also contracting coronavirus because of how fast this virus spreads. Now, as you can imagine, Eusebius, if they bake this into the internal system, which is what they're going to do, and this is going to be ready next month, according to um, Google and Apple, um, they say that your information remains private. They say that your information is going to be uh, entered into an app on your phone. But the question is, how much do they know about us? If they are able to contact me to say, yeah. I was in close proximity with Eusebius yeah. at some point, and that I should be wary that I may have contracted the virus. The question is that how much do they know about me? Now, I do understand that. And it raises, doesn't it, that age-old philosophical issue uh, that really is a horrible conundrum. We, we always have it after moments of overwhelming public interest to do something in the collective good that is in tension with maximum individual liberties. We saw this after 9-11 in America. We saw this after 7-7 in the UK. And then the mechanisms introduced by the state to keep us safer, either from acts of terror or from, in this case, a virus, may involve giving up some of our freedoms. Now, we don't have a problem with that in principle, even in liberal democracies. But the devil is in the detail. Exactly, and exactly. And what's interesting for me is that countries like France, countries like China say, we're not going to use the system. We don't want this in our systems. We will use our own systems. So, uh, you know, everyone is using their own kind of systems. And yes, it does have good value. There's no doubt about it. If, if, if you and I understand that this is going to be used to protect our health and protect our fellow citizens and, and, and people around us from contracting something very dangerous, then I'm for it. But we don't know what else and what are the other sinister alternatives that governments can use as power? Not necessarily Apple and Android, because governments can force Apple and Google to say, we want more of this information. We want to know more about how you gathered this information. And this kind of leads us to the next question. And if you look at, uh, you know, history and you look at how, um, you know, these viruses, I mean, there's no doubt about it that we are all at the moment um, you know, in fear mode, right? We, we are scared. There's no doubt about it. I'm, I'm in fear of contracting the virus. I'm in fear of my family. I'm in fear of what, what this is doing to people who don't have food, for example. So we are driven very much by fear. And that's how governments run, you know, their oppressive systems. If you look at historically, fear is one of those words. And I, and I love what Albert Einstein once said. There are three great forces that rule the world. He said, it's stupidity, it's fear, and it's greed. And uh, this leads us, yeah, this leads us to this, the next uh, interview, which I'm going to be playing and the, um, Vice, which is a fantastic website. If you want to go and look and watch this video, Vice co-founder Shane Smith interviewed, uh, Edward Snowden a few days ago. And, um, there's this new series that's coming out on Vice TV. And they were just talking about, uh, coronavirus and how governments 
are in inverted commas and the words that he used are building the architecture of oppression. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting. And, and I've been uh, wanting, kind of I've been wanting you and I to discuss it. We'll need more time than we have today. I think that, that was just such a beautifully complex interview. I will put it on yes. Twitter and Facebook for anyone who didn't see it, but you have yes. excerpted a minute or three from it. Uh, shall we play from yes. it? Yes. So this is, this is how he kind of frames where we are today, Edward Snowden. Everyone is fearful um, and hopeless and so worried about today um, that we have really stopped thinking about what tomorrow will look like uh, as a result of the decisions that we take today. Uh, we've seen in countries like Taiwan and South Korea uh, and spreading also into more Western countries um, and of course in the United States where it has begun as well, the tracking and monitoring of the movements of the whole of the human population through the movements of our phones. And it is, I think, uh, something that should raise cause for concern because when we talk about the applications, and I'm, I'm sure we will, they're, they're saying they're using it for contact tracing. This person gets sick, uh, where did they go? Who may they have come in contact with precisely so they can produce these kind of text messages that you describe? On its face, it seems like it might be a good idea. Uh, there is, of course, a, a natural presumed benefit here. And yet, uh, this level of contact tracing, this, this method of contact tracing, uh, does not really work on a pandemic scale. What is being built is the architecture of oppression. So it's very interesting when he starts the conversation. And just to go back to what I was saying earlier about Google and Apple, who I believe are good companies and their intentions are good. But, you know, just so that we all understand the technology behind how tracking actually works. And we hear about these trackers and in the relation to uh, COVID-19, this is what Edward, Edward Snowden had to say. There are a number of ways that you can track the location of someone through their phone. Uh, there are the cell phone towers themselves, but there's also uh, the wireless network that you're connected to. And then what other wireless networks are around you that you're not connected to? This you can think of as what wireless networks your phone can hear. And so these wireless network identifiers are then collected and they're mapped out against GPS. And then they know if you can see mom's Wi-Fi and neighbor Ted's Wi-Fi and the library Wi-Fi all at the same time, you have to be within range of these things. It becomes a proxy for location. Now that we know uh, all of our phones can and are being tracked at all times just by being turned on, um, the phone companies have it at a bare minimum. Facebook probably has it, Google probably has it, Apple probably has it, uh, and many, many other companies you've never even heard of that run ad networks. What this really means in uh, a France or a, a United States is they go, well, look, we're aware of privacy concerns. So what we're going to do is we're going to um, depersonalize this information. We're going to anonymize it. And we're not going to look at individuals. We're going to look at the flows of uh, movement of these phones, right? We're not looking at one phone. We're looking at the aggregate movements of phones. The problem is if you're not tracking one infection or a hundred infections, but you're tracking a hundred thousand infections, contact tracing quickly becomes useless and more. Uh, the precision of location information is either 
so rough that it is largely useless, which is the case if we're talking about the cell phone networks, the cell phone towers from here, to very, very precise location information, in which case this information, when you're applying it at scale, uh, cannot be anonymized in a meaningful way. And then there's this big question of, well, where does all that information go? Uh, how is it controlled? Who is it being used? It's information about me. Uh, I should have some influence over it. I should have control over it. Um, but unfortunately, in the United States, to a large degree, uh, you don't. There is no basic privacy law uh, in the United States. We need to be able to make sure that the brakes that are being pumped are on the pandemic rather than our society. That is fascinating and scary all at once. And I, when I, when I watched that interview, I listened back to my conversation with Judge Kate O'Regan. And this is why I said to Judge O'Regan, and, and obviously I've got enormous respect for her. She's a brilliant jurist. That in a sense, the ability of the judge designate here in South Africa to provide an effective role in seeing whether the use of electronic comms and whatever else on the part of the state to help with tracing is not abused, that her ability to do so is going to depend on what resources she has at her disposal. But but here's the interesting thing. If someone like 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 this dude who's a world class expert can tell us how technologically difficult it is to A anonymize your data, B to prevent even wireless devices that are off near your own device from capturing your data then it makes me very worried, Aki, about the safety of the data in terms of storage and potentially being manipulated for nefarious purposes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, watching that uh, interview, and I urge everybody to watch it, it's on the website and Eusebius will tweet it as well, is it will send goosebumps uh, up your spine and it will just give you the chills. But what gave me the chills was the conclusion uh, of where we will go after COVID-19. Mm. How is this going to be manipulated? How is this fear? How is this uh, what they know about us through our devices? How will that be used? Will it be used for good or will it be used for bad? And this is what Ed, Edward Snowden had to say to the uh, editor of Vice magazine. Emergency laws proliferate as we sacrifice our rights, uh, we also sacrifice our capability to arrest this slide into a less liberal and less free world. Uh, do you truly believe uh, that when the first wave, the second wave, the 16th wave of the coronavirus is a long forgotten memory, uh, that these capabilities will not be kept, that these data sets will not be kept? Will those capabilities begin to be applied? to small-time criminality? Will they begin to be applied to political analysis? Will they begin to be applied for doing things like uh, performing a census? Will they be used for political polling? No matter how it is being used, what is being built is the architecture of oppression. And you might trust who is dealing with it today. You might trust who runs it. You might go, you know, I don't care about Mark Zuckerberg, but someone else will have this data eventually. Some other country will have this data eventually. In your country, a different president will have control of this data eventually. And someone will abuse it. And now all of us collectively at the same time has been forced into a global sabbatical 
uh, all around the world, which is an extraordinarily rare event in history. We are at one of the only moments that will be in our lifetimes where the system is so stressed and so overextended and the leadership so clearly out of its league that we have the ability to make not reformative changes, but revolutionary changes, that we can actually change the functioning of society, that we can actually change the structure of the system that controls and influences our lives, the way that we are being monitored, the way that we're being tracked. Because these systems, if we do not change them, will not simply be used to monitor our health. They're going to make decisions for us on an automated basis to determine who gets a job, who goes to school, who gets a loan, who gets a home, and who does not. And we today are being asked in a moment of extraordinary fear, what do we want these systems to look like? And if we don't make that decision ourselves, it will be made for us. So Aki, I want to make a comment and then ask you a final question. Uh, the comment is one I made to another media colleague on the phone the other night, which is, when we have trust in the government of the day, we don't mind certain restrictions on our freedoms. But it is so important yes. that we ask ourselves, who do we be prepared to live with the norms that we are entrenching now if it were to be in the hands of a government we don't like? In the South African context, that means ask yourself the kind of powers that you are ceding to President Cyril Ramaphosa's ANC government. Would you be happy if Jacob Zuma were to have a rise from the political grave and in 10 years from now were to be the beneficiary of the increased powers that had been ceded to government during the fight against COVID-19. And that's a chilling question because it focuses our attention as citizens on the importance of making sure that we have rules, institutions and norms in place that have a skeptical presumption of the quality of leadership of the day, rather than, as we did in 94, designing a constitution with Madiba in mind, and then you are shocked when Jacob Zuma comes to power and he hollows out the state uh, for personal gain, or as Trump is doing in America, using executive prerogatory powers for corrupt personal ends. So you've got to make sure that your rules understand the possibility that you can have bad men and women that are in charge of the architecture that you are building. With that said, though, my final question to you is this. How do we get the balance right? How do we skeptically fear an architecture of oppression, but at the same time increase the technical capacity of the state to be able to fight something like this virus? Well, this is the big question. And, um, and you know, there's a fine balance over here, but when you look back at history, and history can repeat itself, and it does over and over again, and when you're, fear, when you're ruled by fear in circumstances like this, as we are ruled by the virus and the fear of the virus, I don't know how much power we individually as citizens have to really fight this and make sure that it doesn't get into the negative levels that Edward Snowden has described and doesn't have the um, you know, doesn't break down all these barriers and we don't live in an authoritarian society. I don't know if as human beings we have the power to do that. To be very honest with you, I think that we can control the growth of it. I think we can fight it in many ways. But perhaps if we unite together as citizens and we say we don't want 
this kind of rule in the future. We don't want our data to be shared out of this experiment of coronavirus because we understand that there is good in it. But going forward, we must be very selective on how governments use our data. And I don't think we will ever have that kind of control, to be very honest with you, Eusebius. Does that mean we have to live with a certain amount of uncertainty? Because you're never going to be able to build in perfect safeguards, right? I mean, right now, I know that it that I'd rather, quite frankly, have the government have a bash at tracing all the people that have been in contact with someone yes. else, you know. Um, and it, it, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because in real time, you want to mitigate against the dangers. But the other interesting thing about leadership crisis is that you don't have the luxury of time to be able to wait until a brilliant engineer has come up with the perfect uh, safeguards. And in the meantime, you have to make decisions about whether or not to use and leverage your technologies under suboptimal conditions because the clock is literally ticking. Absolutely. And as you said, right now, I trust the government in the notion of using this data, helping us combat this virus. But who comes next after this government and how they are going to use this data is the question. Absolutely. Aki, thanks so much. Cheers, my friend. Have a good one.